If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile app available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. You are now listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. It's time to get lost and... Day. It is a good day, and you are locked in to Radio Free Brooklyn. The show is indeed Lost and Rewound. My name is Alon, coming at you once again from the lair for this Thursday afternoon. I'm riding solo this go-around, but I've got a familiar voice that will be joining me momentarily. No clips are needed this week, in fact. <laughs> Just a, a good old-fashioned catch-up. It is, after all, our 250th episode of LNR, so something special was bound to go down. So without further ado, let us begin. Cue the Casio Tones! this 250th episode of Lost and Rewound. I am joined by a comrade, a co-creator, and easily one of the best cats that I've ever had the privilege of getting to know over the span of a decade. Uh, Mr. Jimmy Hoffman, welcome back to Lost and Rewound. Good, sir. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Been uh, a long time, man. Indeed. Uh, I believe it was uh, the summer of 2018, the last time that we uh, heard your pipes breathe uh, fresh air into the microphone. Well, as uh, for, for anyone that does that does like follow the show more closely and that knows my more uh, hermetic. Is that, that we? <laughs> <is> that <hermetic? laughs> hermit, I like, like it. The, 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 her, the hermit lifestyle. Uh, but it, it did take me what um eight years of even performing stand-up comedy before i and and a pandemic before i did finally put any of my own media like on the internet or, or for anyone to access i was just thinking about that recently like other than me performing with you on this program there were no recordings of me performing for the majority of my like you know professional career because just yeah. because i was in back rooms you know and maybe I, I, the occasional person film me for a minute or two on their cell phone, but I don't, you know, have access to any of that. Those files. <laughs> sure. One of the things that I remember deeply about you was uh, that you did not like to listen back to yourself. 
And I'm wondering, as somebody who creates content a lot now, something we're going to have to talk about uh, in a bit, do you still feel a little bit hesitant listening and watching back to uh, content that you're creating? Or have you felt more comfortable looking back and listening back to that content? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about me, you know, still to this day, not listening to much of us, you know, on, on this program, like you said, like this, this, this feeling of cringe when you listen back to your own performances, Yeah, because you might, you might in your mind think that it's going one way, but then when you, when you look back at it, 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 it's something else almost entirely. But I can tell you that you're, yeah, definitely now on having to look at my face for hours on end, you know, editing, and for the listeners out there, I now have a YouTube channel that you can check out. Um, and my name on YouTube is Slim Jim Jammer, which is the same as my Instagram and TikTok and all those uh, Twitter and such. But yeah, doing like starting out doing talking head YouTube of myself on different topics, it was a challenge. And I can say that at first, I it was like breaking through a wall almost. I was so worried about you know how it's coming off and my performance wanting more for myself in certain ways and giving myself a an idea of like a performance quota and I, and I like a, an actual amount of you know films that I wanted to come out or videos for for YouTube I had to desensitize myself to watching myself and now I enjoy it it's the opposite now I think that I'm good and I'm like you know I think it was I think it was a lot of being worried that I wasn't going to actually, that I wasn't actually a good performer and that I didn't personally think that I was as good as maybe someone else would have said before. But no one ever gave you constructive criticism or did they? And then it, like you, it got to your head. I think that was the problem is that I didn't get any constructive criticism that I just got like a lot of compliments over the years for performance. And I always was kind of wanting someone to tell me like what I was doing wrong to get better. And people were always just kind of like, oh, it was great. And I was like, okay, but like, I don't know, I don't really know how to, how to work from that. So it, it kind of, in my mind, it kind of uh, created a, um, this, I had this image of who I should be based upon the reviews that I had. And it like, you know, it, that, that old, I've, I don't know, we talked about it on the program before, but, or we've talked about it in person. We may have. There's a, there's a German term called Feldschmerz, which is the depression you feel. Uh, yeah, only the Germans can come up with this. Uh, the depression you feel at um, not, li not living an idealized version of your life. So you have imagined yourself as a certain individual or that maybe your life would be going a certain way. And because it hasn't gone according to that script, you know, you're feeling, you know, sort of lost or like a failure in some ways. And in my mind, I, I guess I sort of had this idea for many years of it, it, people are telling me that I'm so good, I should be more successful than I am. And if I don't have financial monetary success in like this capitalist world, which that's the only way we measure ourselves is how much, how much bacon we can put on the table. Um, then how do I know if I'm actually good? People can keep saying it, but I don't believe them because I'm broke. <laughs> you've, uh, I mean, you've certainly made a name for yourself uh, for a very long time uh, running open mics at uh, Topaz. And um, I guess what originally was called Tilt. Um, 
No. But it, it changed ownership and it became something else. And uh, just as well, there were a, a number of open mics that you were known for all over Brooklyn, north and south. There was also Jeep Jet. That was another one. And the Tea Lounge. I also filled in for a few months uh, hosting at, uh, what was the name of that place? The one that was in Prospect Heights. I remember it now. Oh, Brandon Saloon. Yeah. Brandon Saloon. You, you, you had well. your 30th birthday there. Yes. Uh, Robin Irene Moss. She brought me on to take over for her. And then I didn't, I, I didn't ever permanently stay there. But yes, yeah, so it was like five different bars or something that I was hosting at over eight years of comedy. And um, I had gotten to be very invested to the point where <laughs> even during the pandemic, uh for the first for the first six months into the pandemic my inbox and my phone would constantly be flooded by comedians trying to get a spot on a show i was running because i was running a show at a bar called um the buren here in um in bushbrook as well yes so uh yeah i definitely had gotten very much into the local comedy scene a lot of fun and it's you know i i joke and laugh about it this idea of like nowadays like when i got into comedy eight years ago it was all of us in the back room and nowadays i can think about so many of those people who were in the back room with me that are monetarily successful that people have heard of and then you know you you get comparing yourself but it's i don't i uh you'll know <laughs> i just i think it's just it's funny it's it's amazing this, to see the journey now you know you've seen a lot of comedians come up what is your opinion about the state of comedy in how it relates to the current political spectrum, shall we say? Uh, that's a really, really interesting thing. Kind of goes back to when I first got into stand-up and I was having a really uh, uh, a feast on, on the, just on the medium. I was obsessed with it and I was going to shows constantly. I was doing two to five mics a night, you know, um, running back and forth in the, in the village and stuff like that and park slope and you know trying to find where i fit into the comedy world and in the comedy world i found that there were people that were all invested for different reasons and that everyone was doing comedy um you know everyone wanted to be funny obviously but at the end of the day there were comedians that were more philosophical there were comedians that were more um obscure and bizarre there were comedians that were very political and there were comedians that were really in it to make, to be successful, to make that buck. And I found that when I got in, I kind of fell into more of the philosophical comedians that I was asking a lot of questions that I wanted answers to. And I also had some political stuff, you know, with growing up in New York and, you know, racial things like that. I had brought this up right when I started comedy. I had a bit about how comedians to me seem nowadays like modern day philosophers. Um, you know, the, the big difference being that nowadays when somebody doesn't like what you say, they just don't laugh. But, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, you got nailed to a cross or <laughs> stoned to death yeah. for, your, for your bad ideas. Precisely. So I do think that, um, that comedians... Um, Especially nowadays, like you say, you know, some big name comedians, and celebrities have become a lot more vocal in the political sphere. I think there's a lot more responsibility with social media, uh, Twitter and the like, that you have a, a following of, of folks that you can influence. And platform. 
at the end, they're, they're very, very, um, you know, hanging on your opinions if they like what you do in other sphere. You know, I do think it is uh, very important for comedians to, you know, measure what they say. And I think that, that, that we have a very important role to play in, in, in the culture war. Right. I mean, you've got a, a number of comedians who in this culture war have chosen to play edgelord and it just becomes a, a place of rotten, rotten uh, one upsmanship. You know, it's like the truly like insidious underbelly of the comedy world. Um, but that thank goodness for folks like you, Jimmy Hoffman, who uh, can go on YouTube instead of trying to give hot takes. You just uh, make videos about what's inside a Pokeball or how to, you know, how to do a good Brooklyn accent. I mean, <laughs> if anything, you've uh, you've tapped to the irreverent part of your comedy and allowed it to let your freak flag fly. The hottest take I have on my YouTube is that. Um... I'm not a big fan of the Avengers and I, and I like X-Men. That was the hottest take. <laughs> that is a hot take. Tell, want to talk a little bit about that? What, what, what could somebody expect from that video? Well, it's funny because that's the only, that's one of the only videos uh, that has like a, a share of uh, downvotes, you know, because it's an, it's, it's an opinion. And I, I approach comedy in a, in a different way. Like I, I try to be respectful of the audience and it's like a, it's a weird thing that I think a lot of comics don't do. Like I really think that, I have a reverence for people uh, as a whole, I think. And I don't want people to feel uncomfortable when they're watching me perform. And I understand that there's this nature to being in, at stand-up comedy shows that can be uncomfortable. You're afraid you're going to get heckled by the comedian or they're going to talk about something that is going to um, you know, trigger you. And I know this because when I mention that I do comedy to folks or I try to bring family members and friends to comedy shows, uh, I can see people get like worried. Like you don't see people panic when you want to go to a baseball game or a concert. But <laughs> so many people I've had where like I'm like, yeah, we're gonna go to a comedy show, and they're like, please don't sit us in the front. You know, like <laughs> it's not up to me. Yeah, so that's not necessary to be funny, and I don't need to put people down to be funny. I don't need to punch down. Uh, you know, again, I. I can be self-deprecating for one. And on the other hand, uh, no one needs to be the butt of the joke. There's plenty of laughs to be had uh, while everyone's enjoying themselves. I have plenty of times when I'm laughing and no one is feeling bad. And I think that's like, you know, it, I, so I've tried to personally try to remove like edgelord comedy. I don't book edgelords. I just good. don't. No, good. So I, like if you are out there and you are one of them and you feel bad and you want to want to tie it against me, like, Go ahead, man. Like, I don't think being nice is uh, is a bad thing. I guess this is going to be my hottest take of the, the hottest take today. Maybe maybe it won't be the hottest. Take. It wasn't hotter takes. I it's think early people, yet. Yeah, I think people that get into edge lord comedy and um, they're just not incredibly creative folk. Like, I, I feel bad. It's not like they they don't have the creativity in them. I don't think that they're like harnessing. They're not looking deep enough in themselves. They're looking outwards. And I think I've told so many comedians that are edgelordy that I that I guys that are edgelord comics that aren't bad people, I can tell. And I and I say, dude, why don't you do a joke about like your family? <laughs> or like when you were a kid. And they're like, oh no way. And I'm like, maybe that's why no one's laughing at your stuff. It's just not personal enough. And no one can relate to you because you're talking like out of your ass, honestly.
haven't done any tourism on my YouTube yet, but right. that's in the works right now. There's a lot of folks out there, I could say that I've known who have done tours as a part of their career focus, uh, but your father uh, was involved in it. He started touring about two years before I did. And when I was going off to college, he uh, he just he said, hey, you should get this touring gig. Like, And this was in the summer before I left. And I was like, what? He goes, no, you should earn some money before you go. I was really hesitant. I really didn't want to. Not because... I didn't want money. I, I thought it was a, a very challenging concept because he was doing a double-decker bus, which I've talked about, you know, on the show before. So I ended up getting into that. And, you know, after I graduated college and worked at other assorted gigs, doing film like I went to school for, really didn't find, uh, I guess, honestly, at the end of the day, it was too much physical labor. I'm thin and it's just not for me. I don't like being hurt. So I just, I just it is what it is. I, I'm like a whiny Jewish guy. It is what it is. I don't want to don't want to lift stuff up. It's heavy. So <laughs> I got back into the touring. I got a better gig now. Um, right before the pandemic, and and probably pretty soon I'll be going back uh, to the That's Statue great. of Liberty. I would, we're working on the Statue of Liberty touring. Nice. And awesome. so at this point, I've been touring for over 14 years. I would consider myself like a senior New York City tour guide. It's, yes. It's, it's, I can go anywhere in the city and people know that chicken man. That's right. The world famous chicken man. The chicken man. <laughs> I, it's, it's, so, it's so peculiar how much that has like taken a life of its own because I've had people offhand mention it to me. I had like one instance where someone mentioned it that they didn't know they were talking to the chicken man. They were like, I yeah. remember the chicken. Weird conversation. I was like, yeah, it's me. It did take, I want to say, a, a one year hiatus in the middle or an eight month hiatus at one point. And I was doing, mm -hmm. uh, that's when I had, I had a gig as one of those clipboard people on the street, which was like the worst thing ever. <laughs> oh, wait, a clipboard person? I was a clipboard person. Uh, would you like to donate money to end gay rights? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and, Do you actually remember what the clipboard was for? Yeah, I was okay. doing anti-fracking. Anti okay. Yeah. Um, but that didn't that, that didn't stop him. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't make a difference. The chicken man um, could not convince uh, this strap hanger. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I had a I had a I had a crisis of faith. I had I have I have crises of moral conscience a lot when it comes okay. to. Okay. I really don't like the idea ever of, uh, I've told you this, I, I'm very respectful of people and I don't like taking advantage of folks and I don't like um, exploitation. So if I feel as though I'm exploiting people in any way, like I, I just back out. Uh, and I think it's probably the reason why I'm not rich. <laughs> no, stay true to yourself, man. I and mean, look, I think when you're in the gig economy, um, sometimes it can be a little bit leachy, if you will. Yeah. Honestly, that, that's exactly it. That's one reason why I was like tourism, because I thought to myself, well, people are paying this amount of money, you know, because they want the tour, like they want to go and see these sites guided, like, and that's the price. And if they don't want to pay the price, they don't have to pay the price. And if they want to tip me afterwards, well, that's totally up to them. So in my mind, I'm like, this is a choice situation. And I, I believe they're getting value for their dollar. When it was me standing with a clipboard on the street, you know, I and I, I started inquiring basically. This is never this is something you should never do. Like, never join a cult and then like ask like where the money's going, kind of. Thing. <laughs>
<laughs> so I like had been in this in this gig and I'm like, so where does the money go? And then they were like, oh, and they tried to explain to me like what it was that they did. And they were they were basically explaining like uh, the, the system of lobbyists, you know, and things like that. And like, oh, well, you know, we got lobbyists and, and they're trying to lobby against this. And, and I was like, oh, so this money is like going into the hands of the lobbyists to hopefully lobby politicians to pass legislation so that we don't have fracking and they're like yeah and i'm like so but i'm like i watched that movie like casino jack i'm like isn't it lobbying kind of like bribes <laughs> like isn't it just kind of you chilling like you hook up like you're like rich and you hang out with a politician and you like buy him a tv and dinner and then they're like maybe i will consider that and they're like kind of and i'm like yeah so i'm essentially collecting bribe money on the street from like regular folks that can't afford it and then they're like oh well we don't, don't, don't see it that way and i had like this big blowout with like the boss in front of the whole place and then i like walked out and it was this big yeah it was this big thing in tourism every week for you know 14 years eight years for comedy so yeah i needed something like a drug but at the same time i wanted you know to be connecting with people as everyone does in this pandemic and i had personally wanted to be putting myself out there on the internet in some capacity i, I thought maybe i wanted to do sketch comedy or maybe just film my stand-up and put it online and I was encouraged by my partner. She said, hey, you know, why don't you do this like YouTube style video, like videos that are of a certain form that already exists and they're popular and you, you could just use your talent and, and basically just apply it to that. And I had never really watched those videos. So I didn't really know that it, what I obviously seen talking head videos, but I didn't like I didn't get it. And she was related to that. I don't know how to ever get away with trying to market my face my likeness at all in a way that people will glom onto whereas uh, you've got a you got a look you've got a look buddy that's the plan and that's you know that's why we we joke but we're half serious and we we you know because again I'm, I'm expecting this kid and we've been thinking a lot about it you know for one we could say to the child hey just because dad is on the internet all the time and people know him and this and that doesn't mean that you have to be. You yeah, know? But, no, precisely. But, but but the child might want to be. So it's like we, we have to, um, you know, we're going to play it by ear and see how, you know, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot to think about when it comes to that. I, I do believe that I'm not as public as I should be, even still. Uh, and I've, I try to be very, very personal. I find that that, people really, really appreciate honesty. And I've gotten the most uh, positive feedback from being my most authentic self. And at the end of the day, if I was an authentic person and I was not that nice, people would still be on board with it because, uh, I, you know, especially in our culture of, of just 
a lot of so much dastardly uh, situations, so many lies happening in this country, I find. So when people come in there, being as truthful as they possibly can, it's, it's refreshing. We'd been together for, I mean, my partner and I for about, um, gosh, what, like seven or eight months before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And we'd known each other for, for a couple of years before that. We'd been friends. So Through the we, scene? Through the open mic scene? Through, through the scene. So we cool. were very close. We've been we've been close friends. So it um it was a very easy transition uh when we got together, sort of thing. But we had sort of known pre-pandemic that we well we yeah, we'd 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 gotten um you know married and things like this. So we'd known we wanted to be together. And we didn't get to have a obviously a ceremony and things yet because of the pandemic, but we knew that we wanted to be together. We knew that we wanted to have children. And we decided because of the nature of the way the pandemic was that it might actually make sense to have a child now rather yeah. than in the future or putting it off because um, we both had lost work and were trapped inside. And, you know, when you're expecting a, a child, you only get like, what, six weeks off of a normal job if, yeah. Yeah, if that, <laughs> so we said hey you know the entire pregnancy can be at home and we can be incredibly attentive and we can you know do all these things i think that the pending fatherhood has yeah it has and has totally accelerated i think me as an adult like i can cook now and i'm much better at cleaning and i'm super organized and like i have i have like a schedule and i'm good about getting back to people and like so all the little things that you you know kind of the, the, the more immature things that you want to leave behind uh and i'm and i'm still working on myself obviously and i want to get better but i think you'll, you'll probably share the the um the same thing with me that uh i even without the child being here yet, there's sort of a feeling of like, I want to be great for them. I want to be the best father I possibly can. Totally. I think the thing that I've discovered just as sort of, you know, preparing for being a dad, being a parent overall is I think the general nature of saying, don't have any expectations, prepare yourself and just you'll roll with it and just allow the newness to wash over you and appreciate the moments in where you can just like have a moment to think and you know don't uh, be overwhelmed by it because it's all it's it's all new it's all new you know we're all like figuring it out as we go along yeah for sure e3 and the flash reunited once again and there's more to come right after this quick word from rfb This is Lost and Rebound. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air. Support independent community media by pledging whatever you can. All contributions are tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. I don't think I ever would have come up with the phrase gluten tootin were it not for you. And here you are on this Zoom call for Lost and Rewound, and you are eating bread. Yeah, so uh, uh, this is, we don't, this is full disclosure. We don't know, we don't know the story just yet. The bounty of the pandemic 
uh, I got back on my health insurance because I lost work. <laughs> which makes all the sense in the world. And yeah. I became unemployed, so I'm eligible for health insurance. So I was like, oh my God, I got to run the doctor while I have this. So, um, uh, you know, the state of American healthcare. So I ran to the doctor and they were like, hey, you haven't been here in so long. Let's do blood tests and this and that. And, you know, everything that we can with your insurance so that you can make sure that you're healthy to this point. Because I'm, you know, I'm not older, but I'm forgetting, we're getting up there in years. And, I had mentioned offhand to my doctor that I had gluten free and that I hadn't eaten gluten in, you know, six years or what, something like that, right? And she goes, okay. And she tested me for uh, my blood for whatever the gluten situation is. Yeah. And she just tells me uh, last week, yeah, last week, <laughs> she says, I don't think you're, I don't think you have a gluten intolerance. I said, no. She goes, well, no, because these numbers would have to be high. And they're not. So you don't have a gluten intolerance. It must be something else. Jenny. And I was what like. What was it? What the hell? At this point, I don't know what it is, but I've been going, like, for one week, I've been going ape. We've been having cakes and, and cookies and sandwiches. Oh, my God. Jimmy. Every kind of bread I can put you in could my eat. Face. You could eat bagels and pizza now. You can yeah, go back. You can go back to being a true Brooklynite. <laughs> I'm back, baby. I'm yeah. Back. <laughs> I feel like I the fuck had, out. Yeah, exactly. I feel like I almost had a penance for like six years. I don't know what. It was. It was pretty awful. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say to anyone out there, uh, if you feel like you're going to try to self-diagnose yourself uh, with, with any sort of thing, uh, go to a doctor and have them check you out because it's not worth it. How Jimmy got his gluten back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. After you've digested, um, we, you know, you've talked about on Lost and Rewound over the years, and I mean, we're going back. This is our 250th show, and I mean, even from day one, uh, I think we've gotten a little bit of the Brooklyn accent, uh, you know, tutorial just throughout the years. I would like to know if you have discovered a gentrification of the Brooklyn accent, how other people try to speak Brooklyn, and are they continuing to speak Brooklyn, or are they just faking the funk? They're faking the funk. The accent is being lost. It was the accent of the street. It's the accent that's against society. Uh, you know, one thing that I can say here on this program that I didn't say, for instance, in my YouTube tutorial on how to speak in a Brooklyn accent, I didn't go through the history of it. But it's an accent um, counter to society. That's one reason why you see all of the mafia guys with it. I go, it's not an Italian accent. The reason they adopt that accent is because it's the accent that the authority is not using. It's their own voice that they can use and it can be the voice of the people. But you know, with transplants and things, you're, you know, you're only, you're gonna gain it to some degree. Like my partner, she sounds so much more Brooklyn now, just hanging with me, she's from LA. So I got a chance to go out to LA for the first time right before the pandemic in February. It was, I was so happy we got a chance to go. And I've never been to California and I absolutely loved it. I didn't know how, what to expect. I kind of had this New York idea that I would hate California before I got there. And it was the opposite. I, I had mm -hmm. the best time ever. The Brooklyn accent definitely 
I think that the biggest example of, and you can hear my voice there, the example, now that we're talking about the Brooklyn accent, was when de Blasio was trying to like, uh, essentially sound like official and uh, uh, authentic. He comes out and he says, forget about it. And he says it in, uh, I don't know, it's not a, not a Brooklyn accent by any means. No, no. <laughs> I'll tell you like this. De Blasio, I don't know, personally, I don't know where he is from. But I do know that de Blasio lived in my neighborhood when I was a kid growing up, and I saw he him all the time. He did, 12th well, Street or 11th Street. Yeah, exactly. Where is his, uh, I know, I think it was, um, yeah, no, was it 11th Street? I yeah, think so. Yeah. I think, but he was closer more in like the Gowanus area, from my understanding. Yeah, he was down between, I want to say, 5th and 6th or 4th and 3rd. Because my buddy lived a couple of doors down from him because we would, when I, right when I got into comedy, and that's right when de Blasio got elected and there'd be like uh, security outside his house. But... Where's his accent? My father didn't grow up in Brooklyn. My father grew up in Long Island and Yonkers, and he had the accent. And he had yeah, it. exactly. do find it very compelling uh and unfortunately i missed it because it was a live stream on uh, your live it page you did a drag show this is something that admittedly um i have never done and more to the point i never would have expected you to do but you came out of uh left field and did something that was for you and for what jimmy hoffman was like eight years ago something that was very brave yeah i mean <clears throat> I can say that I never expected, like you say, that would, that would be something that I would have ever done. I definitely got very intrigued by drag. Uh, friends of mine put me on to, through, through the scene, put me on to drag, uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah. Which I, for me, I'm uh, just a huge fan of competitive reality. I don't know. It doesn't matter what you're competing. <laughs> Are you making a pot? Are you making a cupcake? Are you <laughs> dressing up in drag? Like, and, you know, in, in all honesty, I would want to do any of them. I'm down to try all the things, but I don't like my hands being dirty as well because I'm whiny. So <laughs> <laughs> cooking and, and making things is like a god. <laughs> honestly, putting makeup on my face is like is like a, a little bit. I don't like I don't like wearing makeup. OK, personally, like, I don't like having it on. Uh, and I think a lot of folks that wear makeup, a lot of women, drag queens, anyone. I bet a lot of them that wear makeup don't like it. I do like how we look at it. I think that's the whole, I like the end product. Um, you are very, very hot, sir. I must admit. Thank you. Thank you. But, you know, I think it's something uh, I never would have thought about when I was younger, especially because I, I was very much under the thumb of my father growing up. And he had a very toxic male attitude about gender expression. Um, yeah. I he was very fine with everybody living their best life. You know, he didn't have any problem with, uh, you know, alternative lifestyles or anything like that. Really, at the end of the day, though, he had big notions about masculinity, femininity, what that meant. And, you know, that you should be sort of fit into a box to some degree or that you should be able to be labeled. And that if you are 
or that you claim to be a like a cis male, you know, that you have to act in a certain way. I mean, I bring it, I had it in my stand-up comedy. And I think that's why I try to tell, and I was, we're talking a little earlier about the edgelord stuff, you know, I, I don't come at it with a trauma kind of attitude at all. For instance, I bring up the idea that my father was over the top masculine and he saw me wearing open toed shoes once there was one day i came back from the beach and i was wearing sandals and he saw my feet and he flipped out and he was like wow what am i looking at your feet for it was like a very effeminate thing to do and i'm telling you he brought it up to me and this is when my father is very sick and like dying he brought he would he would be in his sick bed and all the only thing he would first thing he would say to me be like hey remember when i saw you in those sandals God, what, was, what were you thinking? What a way to tell your father you're gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, so, you know, I think that when people, you, you underestimate the influence your parents have on you. And, you know, you can say you don't like, you're not going to respect their opinions and this and that, but it doesn't matter who you are. It's very, very important what they say to any child. So his attitudes towards me were something that I really internalized and externalized, you know, without knowing. And I had this masculinity, you know, that's one thing that I think was interesting is I had, um, and I've never truly, truly felt this way, but I had a friend of mine and a friend of the show, uh, Siobhan, who's been a, a, a many time oh. guest on her program. Fogarty, yeah. Fogarty, yeah. She told me that when she watched me doing drag for the first time, she cried. And it was that it was almost that I seemed like to her, like we were so we're such close friends, but it seemed almost like I was the last person that would do that because I almost seemed like a so like as she said that like I was like a pillar of masculinity to her. Like I was so masculine to her, like I exuded it compared with all other a lot of our other male counterparts. And I was like, well, I was projecting all this masculinity, not necessarily because I felt it, but because I felt that that's what society wanted from me. That's why I do encourage anyone out there to, you know, to just do what feels right for them and to, to not worry so much about how you're going to be perceived. I can, I can tell you that I'm, I'm not speaking from a place of like experience here and I struggle with it myself. And I, I've done the drag now a couple of times, but I, I'm going to, I'm taking a hiatus from that because I was having a lot of gender dysphoria. It was, you know, something that was difficult for me. And anytime that someone you know, when people, you know, are trying to discredit, uh, you know, people going through gender dysphoria and, and, and trans individuals and stuff like that, like they just people just don't know or they haven't taken those steps or they haven't asked themselves any real questions about that sort of thing. So, you know, I wasn't doing it to make any sort of stand and I wasn't doing it to prove any, anything. Uh, I was just doing it to do it because I, I wanted to do it. I wanted to put a dress on i didn't think it's it was so wrong it's one of those things where it's it's it can be hard and i think one thing that i took hard is that we you know we mentioned earlier this idea that marketing myself and i'm trying to be very active on social media and you're building an audience and you know when you the more honest you are about yourself there's always going to be people that are going to have a problem with that and that they don't agree with what you're doing as much as it will be people that will be in your corner and i mean i can tell you that I, when I first posted a photo of myself in drag on social media, 
that photograph got more likes than the photo of me announcing my child. <laughs> and I also lost two dozen followers at once. Wow. In the, gone in the wind, you know? Um, and then the people who were my followers uh, and friends of mine were that much more in my corner and right. that much behind me. And literally today, I was just going out to the market. Um, with my partner, we were just picking up some food right before I got on the um, on the call with you here before we started recording. And I saw a guy I hadn't seen in years. And I just saw him at the market. And I said, hey, man, how's it going? And, and he didn't recognize me at first because my hair and beard are so long and we're masked up and such. And immediately he goes, oh, man, I saw the drag stuff. I love it, man. Like, keep doing it. You know, so that it was that was really nice. I do stand up comedy, but I do, you know, I don't think anyone should ever be boxed into one type of performance. You yeah. do all the crazy dance a lot of thon, karaoke wildness. And I'm sure that there's different ways that you want to express yourself creatively yeah. going forward. I'm never going to live that down. I mean, there are people <laughs> who are I'm still Facebook friends with to these day who, uh, you know, for what it is worth, I haven't spoken to or seen in person and they're going to bring that up and I'll be like, yep, OK, I'm here. I haven't gone anywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm still the same guy. I just don't go to karaoke anymore because I'm a 38 year old father to be. So <laughs> I know my role and it's sort of in a way no different than what I'm doing now and there comes a point where like you've made your mark and you're excited to, you know, see what else you can accomplish. What do I want to be known for? Right. And if you can accomplish being known for being able to go for self and be brave, that's what people should know you for. You're being very diplomatic with how you put yourself out there. Uh, you've, but you've made a, a wise and a conscious choice to throw away these suppositions and these uh, old motifs of uh, that you were raised with to just you know embrace being more progressive and that will rub on people the right way i think that's uh, something that people should be encouraged by so th i think it's really great that somebody had come up to you just in the wild and said how cool that was i want to actually bring up something though uh, that I, I, i'm itching to ask you you said that your father was dying but he hasn't gone he's still alive yeah, so he has um, a basically very, very bad dementia at this point. So conversationally, yeah, I, I can't, like, there's nothing, he doesn't, I'm not really, you can't really speak with him in, in any sort of normal capacity. Anymore. I understand. So that's sort of this uh, thing that I guess I was alluding to before was the idea that I felt very much under his thumb when I was younger. Yes. When he when he had when he had capacity. And now that he doesn't, it, it's it's like he's passed away. And and I and again, it's I think on anyone that's had maybe a parent that has passed would be able to relate to that idea of the expectations are gone um, when the person isn't there anymore. I mean, they are not gone, but they're at least changed to some degree because they're not going to be able to see it. And I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry, things, Jimmy. Yeah, there were a lot of things that I think I had. A lot of ways that I had acted of things because I, I felt respect for him and, and what he wanted for me. And as you get older and you think, you know, why would you live for anyone else? You know, he was very against tattoos, for instance, mm -hmm. and not on a Jewish. I don't like tattoos because you can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. That wasn't it. He personally didn't like tattoos. 
And I felt for years like I shouldn't get a tattoo because I don't want him to feel bad about me as a son. That was a that was a big thing. I was like, I I don't want to look bad in his eyes. I don't want him to look at me and feel bad because I don't want to bring sadness to someone that I care about, you know. And but it's like one of those things where you have to understand that your own happiness is just as important as anyone else's. And I think that I personally and I, you know, hampered myself for a long time trying to make someone happy that was very unhappy, and I didn't have that ability. I really thought I could fix his problems, you know, and couldn't. And, uh, you know, that's why I, I think, you know, again, I similarly give the advice that to anyone that has a situation like that with someone who is very close to them, a family member, you know, maybe someone that you feel did you right and, and cared for you, but is pulling you down, you know, can be like a weight. And when my father got to be to a point that was so sick where he couldn't give me any more fatherly advice and I couldn't, I couldn't speak with him in that manner anymore, it changed the way I began looking at everything. And all of a sudden, I stopped thinking about his frame of mind and I started creating my own. And I started creating my own frame of mind when I was 30 years old, truly. So I think that I really have come into my own since that time. And I've been more myself for the last now almost three years than I ever have been with just that ability to, you know, think for myself. And I didn't ever think in that time that I was using his frame so much or that I was so in his lane, but I really was. And it's, it's again, it's a difficult thing to see. He was sick. I felt indebted to him. I felt like he needed my help. You know, he didn't have anyone for so long. And it's family, you know. You feel like you have that responsibility. It's a hard thing. Segwaying into this new stage of your life, um, I'll be a little with a little bit of a bittersweet uh, uh, tinge because you can't really share this news with your father, um, but your mother obviously must be very happy. Yeah, my uh, my mother is is absolutely thrilled, and she is really looking forward to being a big part of the child's life, and I'm looking forward to that as well. I hadn't then really been as close with my mother as I had been my father growing up, so I'm looking forward, like you say, to this new chapter where I, I'm trying to forge a, a really strong bond with her. I want to have that family for my child. That was one of the things that I that I valued most when I was young, was being together with the people you loved. And you only can't put a price on it. And I always regretted not being able to uh, know my own grandfather. I feel very sad that my, my kid won't be able to, to know theirs. Um, but at the same time, 
it's not like a reason to not have a child. Uh, and like you no, said, no, all, sure. all, all we can do is uh, give them the, the best opportunity to correct all the mistakes that our parents made and, and do better. My father definitely, he did, I, I, you know, at the time, and I still remember thinking this, he would, he, even, he used to say them, he used to say it to me, like me, he would, he would gloat. <laughs> but it was this idea that he would tell me, he'd go, I'm doing all these things that my father never did for me. So look at what a great father I am. And, and those things that he did were nice. And I remember he said, look, he would, he would hug me. He said, my father never hugged me. The father would hug me all the time. My father would kiss me on the forehead. Nice fatherly kiss on the forehead. I used to I loved it. So, so, so sweet and nurturing, you know. My father, my father would tell me, my father never kissed me on the forehead. You know, so he would, he, he, I mean, he wouldn't try to do it more than over. <laughs> ah, no, you'd be lucky you got that, you little bastard. <laughs> but, but it was very much, um, you know, he never, he never raised a hand against me. And he had respect for what I, for my opinions. And he uh, always wanted to hear what I had to say. So there were a lot of positive good things about him and reasons why I stood by him. I didn't see all the other side of it where he had his own opinions that he was pressing on me and that, you know, if he didn't agree with an opinion of mine, he would just discount it. And I didn't like see it, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. It's so fascinating that we're doing this, man. You were for a very long time uh, a an integral part of this show. We were on and off, and then you vanished. You became effectively the funky ghost, I would call you. Um, and you're you're not a ghost anymore. Uh, you're still very funky. Um, I, you know, I I have to wonder, like. If if there was anything that you learned from this show, did I help with anything at all? Because I would like to just formally apologize for not being there for you enough, for not supporting you enough in your endeavors. And, uh, you know, when I could come, I could come to the open mics and, you know, support your comedy. But I felt like I came up short a lot of the time, and I'm not sure if that had anything to do with the ties being soured for us being partners for the show. Well, that is um, absolutely one of the nicest things you can say, and I really do appreciate that. I sort of feel like it was the other way around. When I do describe you, to folks like my partner who hasn't met you before, um, I sort of bring you up as uh, Alon, uh, one of the most loyal people that I know. And I, I literally said that today. The guy is a tremendously good friend, and you've been nothing but good to me. Um, I understand if you feel like you could done could have done more. I feel that way about almost everything in my life that I've always can do more. Um, I do feel personally as though I betrayed you multiple times. And I feel terrible for that. And I don't think I'll ever really get over it. The lack of attention in, in, in our friendship and relationship was, was due to me. So I would have to apologize myself and say that I hope that you can forgive me for not yeah. being here. And um, all I can say is that I do genuinely treasure you as a friend. I apologize. Um, 
my only again it's like i i, I excuses are, are are really not something that i think are worth it at the end of mm-hmm. the day but it is, it is nice to hear when reason people have reasonings all i can say is um i've I, yeah i've had a, I've had a lot of emotional turmoil uh for the better part of my adult life and it's something that i do feel like i'm getting through and i'm getting to a much better place you know it's it is i think it is a fitting way to end our program that we're both going to be fathers it's um it's almost like you couldn't write it as good yeah. so uh, i yeah. i do want to say that um i i think that i did grow a lot through this program it helped me quite a bit performance wise and it helped me personally with my idea and my, with my attitudes towards my public persona and stuff it really made me arrive you know at the point that i am at now i think had i not done this program it, it probably would have been a lot harder for me to have a public persona like i'm trying to cultivate and uh, the the marketing of myself it was something that scared me for a long time so i think this show being out there uh because i've had i had instances of people where they met them and they, they'd heard the program before uh-huh. And, and it threw me off because I hadn't had any sort of level of um, even minutia of fame sort of thing. So <laughs> yeah, no, uh, early days of LNR back in the homegrown podcast day. Yes. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I know yeah. that sort of thing. Um, it definitely, again, I talk about being in the philosophical comic. I, I've That's who I've you never, are. I have never been into comedy uh, to make a buck. In fact, I've run from making money so many times <laughs> in my life. I, I've thrown money literally in the trash can <laughs> like it's it's been it's been silly um how much i've almost eschewed uh success in, in instances trying to find um the, the correct balance of like doing it the right way yeah um but i i i thank you for for having me be a part of the program with you and i, I it's a it was a formative part of my of my career and i it yeah it's been a great it, it, it was a, a privilege and an honor to uh, share uh, the microphones with uh, you for so many years, Jimmy. Because um, I would not have come onto Radio Free Brooklyn to host Lost and Rewound if I didn't have you in my corner. I mean, there is no question that integral to cultivating who I was and the kind of personality that I guess I was <laughs> cultivating on a weekly basis, literally a weekly basis and just producing and churning out episode after episode and fuck man, you were along for the ride. Monumental episode 250. Um, you know, who would have thought that we would have been even at 200, much less, you know, 150, etc. Like all these milestones are uh, meaningless over the years. But uh, it warms the cockles of my heart that uh, I could have you coming through with us, with our long hair and our our, our soon to be uh, parent 
uh, tips uh, that we'll have to share with one another, <laughs> come what may. Um, Livit uh, is uh, an app that you can download on your phone or a mobile device. Your boy Slim Jim Jammer is on there. Yeah, you can find me on the Livit app. You can get that in the App Store for free. L-I-V-I-T app. And you can also find me on Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok, on YouTube, my YouTube channel. And all of those, my name is the same. All platforms, Slim Jim Jammer, S-L-I-M-J-I-M-J-A-M-M-E-R. Follow your boy. Follow your boy, the chicken man. Get Get on it. Cluck, cluck, brother. Ah. Give me them cluck, cluck, right? <laughs> Thus concludes episode 250 of Lost and Rewound. Take a listen back to previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and our main hub at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash LAR. And that will about do it. This is Alon signing off from here in the lair. Much love. Stay safe. Get faxed. Peace. say many years ago and as much as i feel like i was slinging some hate towards him earlier um i do appreciate some of his maxims the maniacs are always attracted to my family <laughs> <laughs> maniacs and me i don't know <laughs>